Good morning. Welcome to The Grove. If this is your first time or first time back, it's so good to have you with us. My name is Stephen, and I want to take a moment to welcome all of you who are worshiping with us online, wherever you may be this morning. We're glad that you are with us as well. Okay, we're five days into this reading plan, so uh, time for a little uh, accountability. How many of you have at least read one day? Hands up. Look at this. All right. Okay. How many of you have plans to read at least one day? There we go. Okay. There's still time to catch up, and if you don't feel like doing the extra work to catch up, just jump in on Monday. But we really hope that all of y'all will participate in that reading plan with us and to piggyback on Allie's message, as we'll see throughout the book of Acts. It really is community that makes our faith vibrant and real and helps us become more like the person of Jesus. And so if you haven't jumped into a small group yet and you're like, "Eh, I don't know, that's for everybody else, try it. It's eight weeks. If you don't like it, we'll give you your money back. And I promise you don't have to do it next time. But I really hope that you'll participate in the reading plan and in those Grove groups. Okay, so we are kicking off uh, week two in a sermon series all about the book of Acts. And the book of Acts, as we talked about last week, is really just a continuation of Luke's gospel. And it ends, or Acts begins where Luke ends and picks up with Jesus having a conversation with his disciples right before Jesus ascends up into heaven. And what he says is he says, listen, like I'm leaving you, but I'm going to send something to you and it's going to enable and empower you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then he goes up, and then the disciples, they kind of go back to Jerusalem, and they kind of gather together in some building or some room, and they are devoted in prayer during this time period. And that's kind of how Acts chapter 1 ends. And this is how Acts chapter 2 begins. So if you have your Bibles, you can open those. If you've got your scripture journals that we handed out, grab those. And if you just want to follow along as I read it, you can as well. So Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come. Now, there's a little bit of info we need to know about Pentecost to understand everything that's about to happen in Acts chapter 2. And Acts chapter 2 is kind of one of those pivotal moments in all of scripture. You know, if you kind of make a list of like the top five moments in all of scripture, maybe you've got Abraham, maybe you've got Moses leading the people out of, out of uh, Egypt, and maybe you have King David, and then you, Jesus has got to be in the top five. Acts, probably this scene in Acts chapter two probably rounds out the top five. But it says they're gathered, and they're gathered on the day of Pentecost. Now, Pentecost is one of three kind of pilgrimage festivals in the Jewish faith. This would be a time period where people who didn't live in Jerusalem would come back to Jerusalem to celebrate uh, a particular holiday. There were three of these every year. The first was Passover, and then there was Pentecost, and then there was uh, kind of the celebration of Sukkot or Tabernacle, a booth. It's strange, but uh, we don't have to talk about that today. Now, what this would feel like is game day in your college town. Everybody who was once there, who doesn't live there anymore, who comes back there for this moment in time to celebrate this great thing that is happening. This is kind of what it would feel like. So if you were you know, kind of going back to Texas A&M and you were there in College Station, during game day, the population of College Station swells 5, 6, 7x over what it normally is because everybody's coming into town. Same with any other college town that's got a decent football program in America. Same idea. Okay, it hasn't been long that A&M has had a decent football program. So, uh, but recently. Now, this is exactly what would happen in Jerusalem. 
people who didn't live there, they would come into town, they would make these pilgrimages, and they would celebrate these festivals. And so Pentecost is one of those three festivals. And in particular, Pentecost celebrates or commemorates 50 days after Passover. What they recognize is that Passover was a significant moment in the history and in the story of the people of Israel. If you remember, this is that moment when God frees them from captivity in Egypt and leads them into the wilderness and ultimately into the promised land. That whole journey starts with the angel of death passing over the houses of the Israelites. Now, 50 days after that, they kind of celebrate what God has done. And the reason that they do that is because they love numerology in the Jewish faith. There's uh, significance to numbers. And so seven, a period of seven days was significant. Well, seven groups of seven days was even more significant. So you can imagine 49 days or seven weeks after Passover, they had another holiday. And they called it Pentecost, which means the 50th day. And so Pentecost is just the 50th day after Passover. So it commemorates that, but it also commemorates about the same time period when the people of Israel believed that God gave them the Ten Commandments. And so there's some interesting things in that story of God imparting the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel that we have to understand before we can get to the rest of Acts. Because really what's happening when God gives these commandments to his group of people is this, these commandments are the guidebook, the instructions, the guidance for how they're supposed to live. And the reason that God wants them to live in a particular way is because God is trying to use his people to be a light to all of the nations. It's in the way that they live differently than the culture around them. It's the way that they make different choices. It's the way that they have different priorities and values. It's the way that they arrange and live their life in contrast to how everybody else lives that makes them stand out. It makes them different. If you were here last week, we talked about kind of the way that the early Christians were described. And it says, as the soul is to the body, the Christians are to the world. This has been God's plan all along, that his people would live in such a way that other people would be drawn to it and be drawn into relationship with God. Well, this is what God's plan was. And so he gives his people these rules to follow that will ultimately help them live in this manner. And so let's jump back to Exodus and see about this interaction between God and his people in this moment before he gives them these rules. So in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, it says this. This is God speaking. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant... This promise that you'll be my people, that I'll be your God, as evidenced by your commitment and obedience to all of these rules. If you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all of the peoples. You're going to be special. You're going to be set apart, holy, like Michael talked about a second ago. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. You're going to be different than everybody else around you. I have designed you and intended for you to stand out in the way that you live your life. People look to you and they see me. And so this is what happens a few verses later when God shows up and gets ready to hand over these instructions. Now they're up Mount Sinai. Moses goes up the mountain to come down with the commandments. So Moses goes up the mountain. It says, now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended upon it in fire. The smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln, and while the whole mountain shook violently. So you can imagine this is some like, sh like crazy natural phenomenon that 
this mountain is surrounded by wind and some cloud and there's fire and it like everybody is scared because they don't really understand what's happening but some you know immense natural phenomenon is occurring in this moment when God is coming down it's when heaven and earth meet and you see kind of these illustrations and these characteristics of what this looks like when God comes down now this is what happens a little bit later after God gives the commandments He's been leading his people through the wilderness, just a couple of chapters later in Exodus, and he says, you know what? My presence is so scary when I come down to the mountain with the fire and the wind and all of this. What you need, what my people need so they don't feel afraid to come to me is like a room, like a house for my presence and for my spirit to fill so that you can visit the house at any point that you like and have access to me. So, God gives instructions, and as you were reading through Exodus uh, a year or so ago as we were doing this as a church, this is about the part when you're doing the Bible reading plan where you stall out, and you're like, oh, I don't know that I can do this anymore, because it's like all of these kind of elaborate, detailed instructions about, okay, it should be this long and this wide, and it should have leaves of gold, and it starts to get really strange and really detailed. This is the instruction that God is giving his people about what this house, this temporary house, should be. Now, in this instance, it's called a tabernacle, and it's really just a portable tent. And so as the people were journeying through the wilderness, they would pick up and move this tent wherever they would go. So if you've ever done a backpacking journey, it's the same thing. In the morning when you wake up, you pack up camp, you travel some more, and wherever you get to where you're going to camp next, you stop, you unpack, and you set up camp again. The same thing is happening with the people of Israel as they're journeying through the wilderness towards the promised land. And God says, all right, I need you to create a home for me so that my spirit can dwell in it and you can have access to me. And so this is what it says once they built the tabernacle or this kind of portable tent for the first time. It says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So once again, cloud, wind, God's spirit fills the place. And Moses was not able to enter the tent because the cloud settled upon it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So this wind, this cloud, smoke, we're not really sure what happens, descends upon it like a thick fog. Moses can't even go inside because it is evident that God's spirit is within this tabernacle. In the next verse, it says, For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, before the eyes of all of the house of Israel at each stage of their journey. So anytime they would set up the tabernacle, wind and cloud would descend upon it, fire would be in the air, and they would know in that instance that was the sign or the indication that God's spirit was within the tabernacle. Now, anytime you're traveling and you're setting up camp and you're taking camp back down, you're traveling, you're setting up camp, eventually you get to your destination. And this is what happens with the people of Israel. Eventually they arrive in the promised land. Well, in that instance, they no longer have need for a portable temporary tabernacle they don't need a temporary home for God now that they're in the promised land now they want a a permanent home for God and so later in scripture we see different instruction given for what it's going to look like to build the temple this permanent home for God with the same intent and the same purpose it would be in this space and in this place that God's spirit would dwell and reside And it would be accessible to God's people that they could come to the temple and know that God was inside and this is where they could encounter, they could interact with, and they could meet God. God was present in this space. Not anywhere else, but particularly in this space. And so as we look in 2 Chronicles, 
in the reign of King Solomon, David's son, he builds this incredible temple for God. And so this is what 2 Chronicles says. And if you're at this point thinking, okay, I thought we were in the book of Acts, we're going to get back there. So now when Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Once again, anytime God shows up, it is evident by cloud, by wind and storm, and by fire. That's always the indication that God is present in a space. So we see it on Mount Sinai, we see it in this portable, movable tabernacle, and we see it again in the temple. And this is how the people knew that God was present. There was some cloud and wind, there was fire, and they could trust that God's spirit was in the place. Well, shortly after they build this temple, the people of Israel are struggling to follow God's instructions that he gave them on Mount Sinai. Because of their disobedience, because of their idolatry and worshiping of other gods, ultimately a foreign empire comes in and takes them into captivity. And you hear about kind of the Babylonian exile. This is when the best and the brightest were taken out of Jerusalem and taken into captivity in Babylon. Also what happens is they destroy the temple. So if you are a group of people who you've always understood and connected the presence of God to be present in a particular place and time, that would be really disturbing. To know that the place where you could access God, where you could encounter God, where you could trust that God's spirit was there, if it was only available in one geographic location, one pin drop on a map, and then somebody destroys that place where God's supposed to be, that undoes your worldview, that undoes your understanding of who God is to you and where God is in the world. Well, this is what kind of these hundreds of years period of time of the people of Israel in exile and captivity, this is what happens to them. They're sitting there wondering where God is because clearly life isn't going the way that they thought it would. And then God's temple is destroyed. So how can God be present if the place where God's supposed to be is no longer remaining? And so what you see towards the end of the Old Testament is passages where prophets are trying to kind of provide hope about what will happen one day, to point to the future and say one day in the future, God's going to come back. His spirit is going to come back down and fill this place. And this is what we see in the book of Joel. We see this. Joel's talking about that one day moment in the future when God's spirit is going to come back. Then afterward. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female slaves, I will pour out my spirit, and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so the people of Israel hold on to the hope that one day this will come true, that one day God will pour out his spirit upon all people. The spirit that was present when God gave the commandments on Mount Sinai, the spirit that was present when God was in the tabernacle, the spirit that was present when God was in the temple. One day, God's spirit will come back. And when God's spirit comes back, heaven comes down to earth and the kingdom of God exists once again. So they're waiting for this. This is what we see in the conversation that the disciples have with Jesus in Acts chapter one. Look. So when they had come together, they asked Jesus, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? 
They were a part of that lineage of people waiting for God's spirit to come back, waiting for God to show back up to restore his kingdom. And so they're hoping that maybe what Jesus is teaching them is going to kind of point to and kind of usher in all that they had been waiting for and their people had been waiting for for hundreds of years. And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. And then we looked at this verse last week. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And now we're back to where we started. The disciples, waiting for something to happen, are gathered in a room. And the day of Pentecost comes and they were all together in one place. And then, just like God had done hundreds of years before, as evidenced by wind and cloud and fire, God begins to move. And suddenly from heaven, there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind. A giant storm blows into this place, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, just like it had done before. Divided tongues, as of fire, appeared among them, and a tongue of fire rested on each one of them. So, the evidence when God shows up is wind, cloud, fire, happens again. But what happens after wind, cloud, and fire? Every time, it's God's Spirit. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them the ability. So what we see is the thing that God had begun to do in the world, that people had been waiting on for God to do again, happens here in the second chapter of Acts. God's spirit once again shows up, but in a different way than God's spirit has ever shown up before. And this is really important. Previously, God had always appeared on a mountain or in a building. Eventually, what they come to understand is that God's presence existed within a temple. But in Acts, on that day in Pentecost, God's spirit fills each one of them as there's little fires above each person. The temple had changed. The temple was no longer a physical building. But the temple became a group of people. It became the believers. God's spirit no longer resided in the building, but resided in the hearts and in the lives of these followers of Jesus. And the same is true today. It's no different. There's no discontinuation of what's happened in Acts. We are descendants of this same tradition. You see, what's interesting about the way that kind of the, the people who wrote Scripture and the New Testament in particular wrote was they had an economy of words that they had to stick to. You see, scrolls were somewhere between 32 and 35 feet long. That's how they wrote. There weren't any longer. You couldn't have customized scrolls. They just came in a set size. It was like eight and a half by 11 pieces of paper. Like once you were out of paper, you were out of paper. Every word matters. You have to choose what you include and you have to choose what you leave out. And it was really important to Luke, who's writing this account of what happens after Jesus ascends into heaven, to list all of these details about that first scene when God's spirit shows back up. And I think Luke is making a very overt point to communicate that the way that God filled the temple then is the way that God is filling each one of these believers now. What happens after this is they begin to speak in other languages. 
in a moment in time on Pentecost when all of the other disciples and all of the other kind of people of faith had filled into Jerusalem. And so what you see is the city packed to the brim with people who had been scattered all throughout kind of the area of the known world at that time, first century Palestine. They come back into Jerusalem to celebrate this festival. And all of a sudden these disciples, these followers of Jesus, they start speaking in different languages as the Holy Spirit gives them the ability. And what happens is the people who are gathered and they hear this sound of the rushing wind filling the place, they gather to see what all the commotion is about. And they start hearing in their own language about this guy named Jesus, this Messiah, this King. And they're, they're not uh, able to understand exactly how these Galileans, these kind of local Jewish people, are able to speak in all of these different dialects and tongues. And so someone, one, it's funny to me, one guy kind of pops off and elbows somebody and he goes, well, it's because they're filled with new wine. Like that's the explanation for what's happening in this moment. Is somebody kind of tongue in cheek says, well, they're all drunk. And then Peter stands up and he begins to teach and he begins to speak. And what he does is in a different way, exactly what I just did. He begins to connect the dots for these Jewish people throughout their history of all of the ways that God has acted in the world, all of the different ways that God has been working through his people. And what Peter does is he shows that it culminates in the person of Jesus. And he identifies and declares that Jesus is the Messiah. And so all of these people recognize and in that moment they accept this new reality, this new understanding that Jesus is the one that they had been waiting on. And they too join into this movement. And it says at that time about 3,000 of them were converted. And then what you see happen next is what Michael read about earlier in the service, the way that they devoted their lives to each other. What I think is so important about this story for us today is the way that the Spirit of God shifts from a physical building into the hearts of his followers. This is, echoes what we say every Sunday. The church isn't a building. The church isn't a service, but it's each one of us demonstrating and living our faith out in the world based on our actions, based on our choices, based on the values and priorities that we live differently than the world around us. This is no different than the purpose that the people of God had at the very beginning. God says, I've called you to be different, to be a priestly kingdom, to be a holy nation, to be a group of people who are set apart. But the good news for us is we don't have to do it on our own. The Holy Spirit is available to each one of us to reside within us, to empower and power us in our ability to live our lives differently. And what ends up happening, we see in the first church, is they begin to live differently. They begin to take care of one another in a different way. They begin to devote themselves to the apostles' teachings and to meals together into the community and to prayers. They begin to take care of each other's needs. It's not just kind of this random thing that we say when we kind of ask you to join a Grove group. It's because this is what it looks like to live differently in the world, to find a group of people who you can share your struggles with, who you can be vulnerable and honest and transparent with. You can say, hey, here are the ways that I'm struggling to live in Christ's example. I need your support. I need your help. It's also the ways that we support each other just in life. One of the favorite kind of call phone calls that I get as a pastor is when I find out that something tragic or you know, um, hard or difficult has happened in one of your lives, and they say, don't worry, their Grove group has already, has already reached out. Their Grove group has already visited them in the hospital. Their Grove group has already taken care of them. The goal of the church is not for you to pay 
a group of professionals to do ministry for you. That's not what this is about. This is about us coming together, empowered by the Holy Spirit, turning and living our lives differently, taking care of each other. So that's why we ask you to be a part of a growth group. That's why we ask you to commit to scripture reading, and that's why we do these prayers, because it is the thing that helps form us into the example of Christ. It helps us live differently. It helps us live a life that's set apart. And so as we continue reading and working through the book of Acts, I hope that you remember that this isn't just a story about a moment in time. This is about a reality that's continuing to happen and unfold here and now. We are now those people who have been called to live differently, to receive the Holy Spirit, and to make a difference in the world. Let me pray for our time together, and we'll keep worshiping. Heavenly God, thank you for the way that you are still present here in the world. The way that you are no longer found in a building, but you reside in our hearts. God, remind us that you have equipped us and called us to be your example in this world. God, through the choices we make, through the values and the priorities that we set, you have called us to live differently, to live holy and set apart, not for our own benefit, but so that others may see the way that we live and be drawn to you. God, let us be that people filled with your spirit and set loose upon the world. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.